Hey, this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Hello and welcome to Anderson's TV. My name is Jack Duxbury and I'm here today in the absence of the captain who's away on holiday and uh, he's uh, a huge honour has fallen upon me and that is for the next half an hour or so. I don't know how long we've got, Mr. Well, I'm not, I won't give it away. Anyway, I get the chance to talk to one of the most important people in music, past, present and future, introducing through Zoom in Connecticut, Mr. Nile Rogers. How are you, sir? Very well, man. How are you doing, bro? I'm really good. We've just turned on the cameras. All I know is you're in Connecticut. How's it going out there? And um, how's your day been so far? Um, well, I'm just sort of waking up. I had a really, really late night session last night till about maybe almost 4 a.m. So even though I typically only sleep about three or four hours a night, I usually sleep from about one to five not usually three to seven. <laughs> so I, I'm a little fragile right now. So take it easy on me. Oh, I'll be so gentle because I am. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so were you doing that over Zoom or did you have someone at the house? Um, at, at that point, what happened was, um, was I'm composing a song with, with another songwriter. And um, so I, I, I rang her and I said, um, at this point in the song, which I love, I actually believe it should it should only be the outro. You should actually, I, I think that as important as those lyrics are, you should sing them as the outro, almost not as an afterthought, but almost like the music is taking you to a place where you just got to go off and instead of constructing it as part of the actual song you know what i mean mm -hmm. it, like to me I, I believe that music should have a beginning a middle and an end and i thought that this would make the end so powerful to hear those type of constructed lyrics that will come off as ad-libs very insightful i love it um in the, I'm taking the place of the captain here who owns the music store We're in anderton's in guildford I, I know you know guildford because you played here in 2012. <laughs> I, can, I, I wasn't lucky enough to get a ticket. But um, I just wanted to, we often start off at the beginning, uh, but you've been asked a million questions by a million different people. I'm going to take the easy tap in, which I think is we're in 2020. And I'm hopefully not. How unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we all had to, a shared experience of having to live through that first bit of the lockdown. I, I just wanted to know how, how it was for you, especially musically. Was there any discoveries you made or like retrospective thinking that went on in that time? So for us, it was, it was actually really dramatic because we were in Europe and one of our crew members, and when I say crew member, she, the, the whole Sheik organization, we're not just a band. We really are like, a family. I mean, it's so one of our crew members who's been a long time member of the Sheik organization is from Italy and he's from the town right where there was a major hotspot. So he had to stay on the road with us for a few more weeks before running back home to his family. And every town we played, um, I, I think we went, 
uh, I can't remember, but I, I, I remember the very end. So Paris, uh, and then we went, um, um, uh, God, well, then I went to a couple of places. I went to uh, where, um, I, I went to Germany and Austria and Switzerland, and then we immediately flew home to America to work with Cher, because we've been on tour with Cher for two years. And honestly, at Cher's last birthday party, we just decided, let's just do this for the rest of our lives. Let's just keep going. So we were all geared up for the Cher tour, and we had done two shows, and now we're about to do the third show. Uh, oh, part th the part that I left out is every town that we left was getting locked down in Europe. As soon as we would leave Paris, next day, locked down. As soon as we go to the next town, next day, locked down. So we just seem to be one step ahead of COVID lockdown. We do two gigs with, uh, with Cher in Texas. We do the third gig, bang, lockdown. And what happened at this third gig is that we had loaded our gear in. We're staying at the same hotel as the NBA team that was playing a big basketball game that night. And then after the, the, the game, he wiped his hands on the microphones and said, ah, COVID's not a problem. He tested positive and the NBA shut down, which basically shut down America. It took a, a damn basketball game in order for America to take this disease seriously. And, uh, and at that point, our gear was on, uh, under quarantine. It, it left with Cher's gear, went to Las Vegas. I wound up just getting my stuff back about two weeks ago. And this is at the beginning of March. Crikey. Where did you go directly <laughs> after that? Did you go back to Connecticut to your home? Uh, just oh, in yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I flew right back to my New York apartment. Um, I came directly to New York. Um, uh, oh, actually, sorry about that. No, man, you, you hit it right. Um, my keyboard player, uh, one of my keyboard players, he and I live very close to each other. So we both shared a car and came to Connecticut. And I stayed in Connecticut um, and I didn't leave. Uh, unfortunately, what had happened is I had uh, eye problems. So I was scheduled for eye surgery. So I had to, uh, man, it was crazy. I had to negotiate when I would go into the hospital. Uh, the COVID tests were not really bad. I don't know why people complain about it. It's actually a piece of cake as far as tests are concerned. Um, so, but you'd have to take the COVID test, wait for the results, and then they have to make sure that you haven't gotten infected from the time that they got the test results until the time they admit you to the hospital. So it was basically a game of cat and mouse, if you will. I get the surgery, and then the worst thing could happen. I had five setbacks. So surgery that I would normally recover from in like a week or two, took me four or five months to recover. And right now I'm scheduled to go to the doctor in four days to see if I'm actually finally well. Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you feeling better? Do you, do you feel? I feel amazing. Right. I, I feel great. But, um, you know, when you're dealing with eye surgery, which already is like hard, oh. pretty, pretty hardcore. Yeah. And at my age, yeah, I'm 68 years old. Like that's that was like really rough stuff, and um, and I have four out of the five um, top risk factors. I mean, it's like everything that could possibly go wrong 
was going wrong, except I never contracted COVID because I've been so uh, safe and isolated and living in a bubble. That's, well, that's amazing to hear because I, the first thing I did when I found out I was going to interview was type into YouTube because we're on YouTube and there, a video came up. Well, you'd done something for the BBC where you were playing in a garden. As, I was which, in Central Park. Was that Right, okay, so you're in Central Park, yeah. Oh, God, what, what an idiot, a garden. And then... Uh, yeah, yeah, I was across from John Lennon's apartment. I was at Strawberry Fields. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, and also, a video came out, which kind of... I want to shape the, the first bit of the interview around, hopefully, which is a video for Fender where you're playing... And it took me by surprise straight away. You're not playing the Hitmaker. You're right. playing an Acoustasonic... Right, and, and it's a tune. Go check it out right now, all of you. Go type it in. in it's inside the box. Right. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you about, and, and mainly about acoustic. It shocked me to see you with it when you've been in lockdown and in your early life. It seems to be a bit that no one's. I haven't heard much of you talk about the influence of acoustic guitar in in your early years. I just wanted to. Ask it, and also on Instagram, you said about the passing of Julian Bream, and I can remember my dad used to listen to him as well, and I love his music. Uh, so I was like, "This guy loves acoustic." I don't think anyone's really asked him about it. Right? No. I, well, I started out on the guitar as a classical guitarist and as a jazz guitarist, so that's what I practice. I don't practice rock and roll. I mean, I practiced rock and roll when I was sixteen years old. You know, when I got like a a couple of big gigantic amps and was like going around with feedback. <laughs> that's what I did, you know, like that's what make people go, dude, you the man, dude, oh man, you know, like playing, you know, like grab the guitar and, you know, and like play behind my head. Um, uh, I, I did that. And, and I realized that my heart and soul when it comes to composing is not to, um, to show off and show how great I can play, it's, I've always thought of myself as part of, if you will, I always thought of myself as part of an orchestra. I always envisioned myself as a child as being part of a symphony orchestra for the rest of my life. If I was lucky. Um, it only took um, um, me playing a really great concert recital, when I say great, uh, great for my level, um, and it was terrific. And as I was leaving the auditorium, I realized that even though I played the the program well, that there was not one black concert guitarist that I could name at that age. Not one. I could go through, you know, Julian Bream, Andre Segovia, Narciso Yepes, and, and, you know, just ton after ton. And they were all white. I was like, oh, it's not one. And I'm not nearly as good as those guys yet. And... I never had the kind of ego that made me believe I'm going to be the one. So uh, I quickly switched over to jazz guitar and, uh, and that felt comfortable because I love jazz. I grew up with bebop, nice big acoustic guitar and that was wonderful. And then I got a job with Sesame Street. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I'm playing in the pit, the jazz guitar worked, but then I got another job at the Apollo Theater. Now we're playing R&B and funk. The jazz guitar ain't quite working. Then I got another job with my partner, Bernard Edwards, who had come along during the time of me at the Apollo. And, um, and he convinced me to play a Strat. 
and I played a strat for the first time in my life. And the exact same strat that I bought in 1973 is the one that I play on every day, like almost every single record to this day. And the only repair that it's ever had, other than the, the you know, the things that I did to it to make it look cool, uh, was I replaced the, the neck pickup once, like years ago, and just told him to put a stock strap pickup in it and don't give me anything special because that's the sound I like. And when they released this one this year of it being in a strap shape, was that the bit that sent you over the edge and went, I've got to try this Acoustasonic out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just showed up. I was at Abbey Road and, um, and my manager, um, if I remember the story correctly, uh, he showed up at my hotel and he said, hey, man, here's a guitar. And we were in a taxi cab, you know, and the, the, the London taxi cabs are really sizable compared to New York. So I, we break out the guitar in the back seat of the taxi and I start playing it. And um, and I just started playing, you know, like something like, you know. And I went, oh, that's pretty cool. Like um, a guitar that feels like a Strat. And, and I can hear it. And I was like, dude, I want... I was like, whoa, give me that. <laughs> so I just started fooling around with it. One thing led to the next. And I didn't even think about it, right? It's just It was just a guitar with me in the studio that I could practice with. And as I said, I don't practice rock and roll. I practice jazz. And, um, and it was just there. No big deal, no story. Uh, and then we get back to America and we're on lockdown. I start writing with a friend of mine um, who's a jazz composer. And we started saying how much we miss, miss each other. And let's do some writing together. So we wrote this song called Inside the Box. And it represented the fact that he was living in a box in California and I'm living in a box in Connecticut, but we can still compose as if we were together. So he would write a motif and send it to me. Then I'd write, send it back to him. He'd say, oh man, I didn't mean for you to harmonize that, but that's actually pretty cool. And then next thing you know, I played the head in four part harmony. And he was like, damn, I really didn't think it would go that far. And then all of a sudden the acoustasonic came into the mix. And it had been in my life for a while, but we had never read the manual. <laughs> so I just, I just treated it like the way I would treat any strat, right? You just get it and just go, do that, turn it all the way up, then back it off a little notch, then turn this knob all the way up, and then go, okay, here we go, and start playing. Um, uh, then the, this manual shows up, and it says, Oh, the Acoustasonic has 10 voices and, uh, and then it has AB patterns that you can mix in and out and you can start that. And I go, what? What the hell are you talking about? So we started to now recompose, actually not recompose. It was almost like if I were doing a symphony, it was almost like reorchestrating. But because it was, you know, a piece that was done for a small jazz combo, um, I just started to, um, do what the, the the manual said the guitar does and my my engineer who's brilliant 
He's like got the manual memorized now, and he's calling out what the thing does. He says, hey, in this position, it's more favorable to harmonics. So I started playing the head, and thank God the song was written in G minor. So I started playing the head. Oh, no, it's actually, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so, it's, um, so it was written in G minor. So I, st so I started playing the head with harmonics going, and I said, oh, that's cool. But it really went, and it, it sang out. So now you just hear me playing it in the room, right? But in, in the amplifier, it actually sang out. It went boom, boom. But now I couldn't play the accidentals. Well, in that key, they're not accidentals, but they're in, in the key of G minor. But I couldn't play the B flat with the same type of harmonic representation as I could with the, the harmonics that lay on the open strings. Um, so then I started to do the other style of harmonic um, response where you're, you know, when you're soloing and you're, you're pinching the strings, you go, but now that's up an octave. Yeah. So then I, I transpose it to down, down there. But of course you can't hear it now because I'm not in position three in an amp. It's coming through. But, it's coming through yeah. over Zoom. Oh, cool. Yeah. So in the amp, so then it became an intellectual exercise of how to get it to go boom, 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 and still stay in the harmonic representation mode of voicings. So I did that, and then Russ started calling out, Yo, Russ. Russ, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, what's up? So then after you, you said to me, in that position, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it yeah. does harmonics. Then what else did you call out? What, what did you say? You during, uh, during when we were, were doing, when we were recording. Well, it, it almost was the same because during the video sheet, you remembered, and then you said, yo, now you got to switch to this. Right, yeah. So, so you, well, it, initially you were just trying out the different positions and seeing yeah, what sounded like sound cool. playing figures, and, and then we, some it, of them we just labeled afterwards. Right, right, right. Um, but so when I was playing and you were right. calling out and you said, oh, that part is sympathetic to harmonics. And we went, oh, right. shit. Right. Right. Oops. Yeah. Well, oh, doo-doo, it really does work. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then I started doing the other stuff before I got to the solo. And then that, that part I just sort of ripped. Oh, yeah. So, so for that lead stuff, you're actually using their, what they call their dirty acoustic. Oh, sorry, the dirty electric. Dirty sound. electric sound, which is what, what position? So that's first position, like the equivalent of the bridge position. Right. And so, uh, is it clockwise or counterclockwise? Okay, like, well, now I, I told you you had it memorized. <laughs> like, okay, that was two weeks ago. <laughs> so anyway, so he said that I, I he, he switched me to uh, that, what's it called? The... So, so for the, the right, right. You're, you're using the, the dirty electric tone. Right. So he says, I'm using the dirty electric tone. Now, what, it, what was interesting is that that was now already superimposed on top of me playing, playing the head like that. So I was playing. In four part harmony, right? So that part I had already done. But now that he told me what it did, then I went to, right? I started doing it like that uh, with, with this new dirty electric sound and superimposing that on, up, up over the four-part harmony. Now, the, the thing that was, 
was interesting to me, and this was just an experiment. We were just, you know, following the manual at that point. We, we made a joke. It was like, uh, the next time you get a, a, a guitar, will you read the manual first? Uh, maybe I would have composed it that way from the beginning or come up with a way that it would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But in fact, I just started doing things randomly just to see what it did. But it did take on some sort of musicality. It didn't sound as random as one would think. And I think the thing that mainly brought it together was the solo. The consistency, the consistent tone of the solo being the same all the way through. Because that was really me just ripping through it. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about it or mm. go back and think about it. I just played it. And to me, when I'm soloing on a strat, I go, <laughs> Turn it up to 10, back it down to eight, <laughs> and then solo. <laughs> it's such a good solo for anyone out there. I, I mean, you'd be guilty maybe to think, surprisingly enough, all the big songs, you might overlook your lead playing, but in that, it's on fire, Mr. Rogers. I can't tell you. It's, and the, the end chords, as you go out of the video, oh, <laughs> I almost fell off my chair when I watched it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> They're so posh, those chords at the end. I mean, and you've spoken about the advanced harmony before. Who is the, the keyboard player on there? Who, is that who you composed it with? That's Philippe Sace, yes. Oh, Philippe Sace. Because yeah. I, I play piano. Uh, that's, that's my main instrument. So I'm a big Philippe okay. Sace fan. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so he and I have been, you know, we've had bands together. So beautiful. He, uh, he was actually with me when my partner Bernard Edwards passed away um, in uh, in Japan in 1996. Uh, we were together. It was, we oh. were, Philippe and I are, we've been friends forever. We're almost like brothers. It's it's re really, really close. It's a beautiful composition. It has all this, and I, I, when I was listening to your music over the weekend, there was always an instrumental song on the albums that kind of, Seemed right. like you were blowing on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's part of the sheet formula. We we look at ourselves as a band that that uh, an album must have uh, songs that you can dance to, songs that you just sit back in your chair, chill, and listen to, um, which are either the instrumentals or the ballads. Um, but we look at it as a complete experience, like a film, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And during the exposition part where that thing is developing um, and, you know, and sort of before we get to, like in a movie, it'd be called plot point one, you know, and then the twist and then plot point two and then the resolution. Um, we've, we've always been guilty of that. I, I'm so old that that's the formula I grew up with. And it's very difficult for me to leave that behind. I just don't, I, I don't know how to do it any other way. I do know how to do it another way. I just feel unfulfilled. It's uh, funny that you bring up the movie there because one of the things had a bit, you've been involved in some of, like, I think you changed my life very early on when I watched Coming to America and that, <laughs> and that wedding march because the, the, again I'm a piano player all that music and I implore yeah. anyone out there to go I, I didn't know about the wealth of 
composing you've done for film. Have you got anything in, in the cast? Because there's a new coming to America coming out, isn't there, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on that too a bit. Brilliant. So they yeah. should do. I'm going to go watch it, if I can, or stream it, whatever <laughs> I want to do. Hey, we're a guitar shop, so we, let's, let's stay with guitars, because the people out there are out okay. there. Um, strats. So does, you've played with and worked with all the best Strat guys. I, I, I listened to the Honey Drippers, and you've got Jeff Beck mm -hmm. in there. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I've got to get to it, because I'm being very selfish. I'm a huge Steve Ray Vaughan fan. Me too. <laughs> and you captured, for me, the definitive sound is live at El Macambo. There's a video, and that I, I love that. And you're the only guy to capture him in the studio with that same intensity on Let's Dance and on the Family Style album. Yeah. Telephone yeah. song. So I just want to get a little bit nerdy, or maybe, or, or spiritual as well, is what, when he was in, the, in there, with his, how did you capture that sound? What was the key to getting the best out of Steve Ray Vaughan in that moment? So I, I really think that, um, so I'm going to tell you the story, not from my point of view. I'm going to tell you the story from Stevie's point of view. Because this was interesting to me, because I never heard a musician say this to me. So when we were doing, um, when, when we were making certain recordings, a lot of the solos he played on the Family Style album, we wound up doing at a studio called Arden in uh, Memphis. And, uh, and, and when we went to Memphis, uh, the studio, it, it was sort of live end, dead end room. And I put his amps, his dumbbells, down at a part of the end of the studio where you actually had no line of sight to the amps. And um, right before I was, you know, doing the miking with, with my engineer, who is actually my other keyboard player, <laughs> um, we were working on it, and he didn't see that I was standing in front of the amps. And Stevie had just said to me, he said, Niall, um, I'm gonna tell you, man. I I never heard a guitar sound like the way you captured me on Let's Dance, and I was laughing and I said, Stevie, on Let's Dance, that was Bob Clearmountain. I was just trying to to keep the band together because I knew we only had a few days to record the whole album. I said that was the genius of Bob Clearmountain. Mm. So he said, Well, give me that Bob Clearmountain sound. So I'm like now going to fix the the mics the way that. Bob would typically fix them for recording us and my engineer didn't see me and Stevie played the loudest note I think I've ever heard in my life and I was standing in front of his amps and you know how you see a war movie and the bomb goes off and you go you can't hear anything that's exactly what happened to me and and at that point Stevie was so loving and he realized that he had hurt me so much it was like that emotion, I'm actually glad that it happened because he got to, he poured his heart out. He then hurt the guy that he said made him sound good when I corrected him and said, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was John, it was Bob Clemon and, uh, you know, and the power station and the wonderful room and all the gear and blah, blah, blah. It made a bond between Stevie and I for life. So the, the, the bond that we had during Let's Dance was fantastic, but it was in and out. It was very, very quick. Family style, unfortunately, as you know, he died hmm. while we were making that record. 
we became so close. It was just incredible. And it's funny that you bring up Stevie today because my post on Instagram this morning shows him playing my guitar. So I, I have a 57 Strat that has gold plated hardware and the store that I bought it from didn't know that it had gold plated hardware at the time. So when they sold it to me and it was a 1957, it came right out of the box, brand new. And I figured that, you know, you got to go back to the way that things were in those days. So either, so Manny's in New York was a store that was so gigantic that either one, it just got lost in the inventory because it wasn't like Fender was so, it, it, I, you know, it's, it's not like today where, you know, like you really have great skew numbers and you know where everything is and blah, blah, blah. Nah, 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 nah. It was like, you know, mom and pop, but just really big. Um, so when we opened that guitar, when we opened that box, the people at Manny's didn't even know what to charge me for it because they knew that it was something very special. Like, how could we have had this guitar laying around for 25, 30 years and it's got gold plating on it. Wow, we didn't know that. Um, it's you know, 57, so it's not shielded. I mean, it was like, it was all this stuff going on. And you know me, I just was trying to get it out of the store as quickly as possible. <laughs> so I'm like going, hey man, I'm a good customer, blah, 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 blah. You know, but yeah, I gotta get back to the studio, give me the guitar. So I get it. And, um, and Stevie is just blown away with the way it sounds. And and uh, and I think I think that it also led to him believing in the mystique that maybe I had some kind of magic with just lucking up on finding cool fenders because my hit maker was the runt of the litter. I bought it in 1973 because it was the cheapest guitar in the store, and it sounds amazing. It's un there's no other strat like that guitar, and. Um, and anyway, so he was enthralled with it. If you listen to the Vaughn Brothers album, my guitars are all over that record. And you can see, I, sh I posted a thing today, and you'll see Stevie is playing um, my, my black Strat with the gold-plated hardware. But later on in that same video where I took that clip from, you'll see later on Jimmy Vaughn is playing the Hitmaker. And that's actually because I'm actually the guy playing on the record. <laughs> and I felt a little weird. So Jimmy just, I think he felt weird too. So he played my guitar, figuring what the hell, it's really Nile playing guitar. So I'll play Nile's guitar and, and I'll do the video. But Jimmy and I wrote the song and Stevie was away. And uh, when he returned home, uh, I had actually sung the, uh, I sang the demo. I didn't even know I sang the demo until I found it in my locker a few days ago. It was like crazy. All of this Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff coming together. Wow. I'm so sorry it was so loud for you. I, I was laughing at the time go, going, because I've always dreamed of, I would give my hearing to stand in front of that volume, to just <laughs> be pummeled by a Zamp. I would, like, just take me. Uh, in a, I also, very uh, guilty thing of me to ask is, what was, was there, because it sounds quite roomy to me, the, uh, the both both things you've captured sound loud through the speakers and they sound roomy. What yeah. was the Bob Clear Mountain slash Nile Rogers method? Was it? Sorry to get dorky, but were you just so, fifty-seven so on there? The, or the, the thing is, is that 
we had a wonderful secret formula at um, at Power Station because we had a number of echo chambers that uh, we could use in um, series and together and blend. We did a lot of blending of rooms. And when it was time to mix, the wonderful thing about the power station, it was almost like a cool collective. It was like, okay, we're mixing. Nobody can use the women's bathroom on the first floor for the next three hours, you know, something like that. And we'd like use a combination of this echo chamber mixed with that one and that one and then EMT plates and, you know, and all sorts of stuff. So it was tons of experimentation and also a lot of Bob Clearmountain being very sure of the way things should sound right from the beginning. And that's what I thought was the real key to Bob is that we always had a starting position that sounded like a record from the word we, from the moment we started playing, it sounded like a record. Then it was like, hmm, let me tweak this to sound like that. Let me tweak this. Maybe I want some more pop out of the drums. Maybe I want this. And, um, and, and when we dialed in Stevie sound, um, Bob was able to start hitting him with combinations that he had never heard before. And it was just so sweet. And it was, um, how should I say? It, um, it highlighted his playing in the midst of a rhythm section that Bob Clearmountain knew very well. He made the first Chic record and he made our records way, he still makes records with me every now and then now. I mean, you know. The drums, he, Bob Clearmountain drums. <sighs> yeah, I mean, even still, I, I, I did an album with him a couple of years ago. It was just so much like old home week, it was great. Um, but, but, you know, so it was, I, I think it's because I came from the analog tape cutting world and everything having to be a workaround that, um, th you know, that we don't mind experimenting with stuff. The same thing I do with the Acoustasonic. It's like, wait a minute, this gives me a guitar that feels like a Strat and I get to play jazz and walk around my house without an amp or headphones and just play. Oh my God because I play jazz differently on a big box. You know, I mean, it's no secret. I go to bed with big box guitars, you know, L5 or De Cristo or something like that, or uh -huh. De Angelico. And that's what's sitting, if you see a picture in my bedroom, it's nothing but acoustic guitars and, you know, and a couple of, you know, strats and whatever. But it's, yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't have an amp in my room. So it's really just so I could play with those big box axes. Now, the Acoustasonic is this is the guitar that's in bed with me, uh, you know, to my girlfriend's dismay. But um, uh, <laughs> it's like I said, baby, it's cool. Just move the damn guitar, you know. It's it's fine. Uh, but but um, it's really a gift to me. And somebody was talking to me about the different electric sounds on the Acoustasonic, and I said, well, you know, give me time to experiment with all that but a gift has come into my life because I get to pick up a guitar, just pick it right up and I get to go, you know, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like, are you kidding? 
Why would I worry about some other bull when I get to do that right now? I didn't have to do anything except figure it up and do that. So I'll get into the other stuff. I'll go read the manual later. Russ has got the manual down. I'll call him. But right now, it, this is a so dig this, man. Here's here's my philosophy. Um, I want to be able to play guitar better tomorrow than I play guitar today. The only way you're going to get better is to practice. I get to practice now, and I get to practice what I practice, which is jazz. So if I have a guitar that I could play almost all the time or any time, I'm not going to sit around nitpicking about the stuff that other guitars can do. I got all, I got 200 guitars. I can do that anytime I want, but there's only one guitar I can do that on. <laughs> it's amazing how everyone in the room just lights up when you start playing. And it's sounding so good over Zoom. Uh, Mr. Ross, I want to leave you to the rest of your day. And thank you for spending time. And just one thing, I didn't see, I watched loads of interviews, stupidly, when I, I had five days before I was going to interview. And I quickly stopped because uh, I realised everyone had asked you everything before. But the one thing I want to say is just thank you. I didn't see anyone say thank you. I thought... Oh, thank uh, you, man. No, it's... The world you know, would be I, a duller place. I, now, I, honestly, I wish we had more time to really talk about all the amazing guitar players I've worked with. I've worked mm. with everyone from Jesus Christ, from Steve Vai to Jeff Beck to Stevie Ray Vaughan to uh, Dweezil Zappa. Um, I, I, I'm John McLaughlin. I've yeah. four things with McLaughlin. I mean, just, just you know, I, I get to play with these mega players that take me to another level. I did live shows with with McLaughlin and Carlos Santana and Buddy Guy and just crazy stuff, man. It's like, that. that's what's awesome about the guitar. We have this thing in our hands. It's like relatively small. We can carry, you know, I carry my own guitar everywhere. So I always am ready. Like, you know, if, if a situation comes up and that's why I've been able to share such wonderful musical moments with so many mega guitar players that just, rip 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 and bring the best out of me you know so hopefully i'll play better tomorrow because i got my acoustic song and i'll practice tonight if i don't uh if i'm not on the phone telling my artist all night uh, let's move <laughs> let's move the middle eight to the out chorus and do it as a, as well, you, mate, you are on fire in that inside the box video and yeah just thanks for making the world a, a happier imagine viewers out there the world without Nile rogers music it just wouldn't be as good. It would be really glum and rubbish, man. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Peace. Thanks, Have man. a great day. See ya. You too. Thanks for listening to our latest podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit that subscribe button. See you next time.